let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, then we'll get into our message today. Father, we just thank you for your word and uh, the pictures you're giving us of eternity here and the latter part of Revelation, just how exciting it is, Lord, as, as we today, Lord, as you show us this picture of your holy city, the eternal Jerusalem coming down out of the sky, Lord, what a glorious sight that's going to be. Father, we just want to make sure that, that when that day comes and, and that city arrives on earth, that, that we're, we're riding down on, on it, Lord, because we're living there uh, in eternity, uh, Lord. And there's only one way to be sure, and that's to be sure that we're in the Lamb's book of life. And so you're going to show us that lesson today, Lord. And I just ask today that, that Lord, that uh, we, just, we get excited about the future we have, Lord, and and if there's any doubts about our salvation, Lord, we just make sure that, uh, that uh, we're where we're supposed to be in our relationship with you. Father, it's, uh, it's uh, just really uh, a privilege to, to, to be shown the things that you show us, the mysteries that you open up for us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you continue to do that today as we study your word. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you today, what is the most important book ever written, I'm sure if you haven't read your bulletin that you would automatically say the Bible. And uh, the Bible is a great book, don't get me wrong, but it's not the greatest book ever written. Well, it might be the greatest book ever written, but it's not the most important book ever written. I mean, I love the Bible. The Bible contains the wisdom of God. You could take all the books in the world and you could take all the truth out of those books and all the wisdom out of those books and you would not match the wisdom and truth that's in this word of God that God has given us. Uh, in this word, we get the, the uh, history of the creation. We get the history of the fall. Uh, we get uh, God's plan of salvation. We get God's plan for a future world where he rules and reigns in the millennium, a future world in eternity, a future universe in eternity, and he shows us how to get there. And so there's nothing more important than the Bible other than the book I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and this word is the manna from heaven. I mean, it's God-breathed, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, or for instruction in righteousness. So, so there's nothing on this earth that's ever been written more important than the Word of God. But there's a book up in heaven that is more important to us. And, and that's the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And I'm going to show you why it's more important in the Bible as we, as we finish up in chapter 21 today. But let's begin by going back and, at this, and look at this glorious picture that God's been giving us of eternity. And uh, we want to uh, begin in chapter 21, and let's uh, read verse number 9. And, and let's look at the new Jerusalem now. He says in verse number 9, he says, Then one of the seven angels, and this is a powerful angel, because this is one of the angel uh, who had the seven bowl, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven plagues. And so we're going into a different dispensation here. The plagues are over. All, all judgment is over. And he talked with me, and, and I mean, he's seen this angel, and he, John's seen this angel pour out these plagues on the earth, and that's been a pretty disturbing thing. And so he, so he grabs up John. He says, John, let me show you something that will really encourage you here now. You've seen all of these judgments. He said, come, and I will show you the bride. I will show you the lamb's wife. Now, we know that when this happens, more than likely, now, again, in Revelation, you can get yourself in trouble sometimes. You can make a mistake by putting things in exact chronological order. But this does seem to appear that this takes place at the end of the millennium. It's possible that it could take place at the beginning of the millennium, and it's just not in chronological order. So I'm not going to rule that possibility out that the new Jerusalem comes down when Jesus Christ comes down to rule and reign on this earth. Now, I do believe that you and I will be living in the new Jerusalem when, when, when the millennium begins. I actually believe that when you die, 
to be absent from the body, the Bible tells us, is to be present with the Lord. So I believe when you die, you go to the new Jerusalem, and you're going to get a first-hand look at it. But then later on, it's going to actually come down out of heaven, and it's going to come down to earth. And so more than likely what we're seeing here in verse number 9 we're seeing we're, we're at, or where we're at in verse number 9 is at the beginning of eternity, and the angel shows John the lamb's wife. Now, who's the lamb? The lamb is Jesus Christ. We know that. Who's his wife? Well, guess what? You're his bride, and so we're his wife. And uh, so where is the church when eternity begins? We know this for sure. We're in the new Jerusalem, okay? All right, now, let's read verses 10 and 11. And he says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. He carries him up to Mount Zion, the mountain of God. There's no doubt that's where he carries him to. And and he sees this great city as it's about to leave heaven and come down to earth. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. And having, watch this, and having, what's what's he noticed? First thing more than anything else. What does he notice about this city? It has the glory of God. He sees the Shekinah glory of God shining forth from this city. Her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear uh, as crystal. So in verse number 10, this mighty angel grabs John up, and he takes him by the Spirit up on this high mountain, and he sees this spectacular city coming down from heaven we call the New Jerusalem. Now, it's the New Jerusalem to the earth, but I don't believe there's anything new about this city. This is the eternal city of God. This is the heavenly Zion, the mountain of God. And so uh, it's, it's not new to heaven, but it's going to be new to earth when it comes to earth. Now, the first thing, as I said earlier, that grabs his attention aren't the streets of gold. They aren't the mansions in heaven. The first thing that grabs his attention is the glory of God. That's what bothers me a lot about these visions, these so-called visions these people have of heaven, and they come back and they write and sell books and make movies about these visions. The, the thing that they notice first are the, are the streets of gold and the, and the mansions and all of these things, and then finally, hey, they're taken to see the glory of God. Let me tell you what, you get anywhere near the New Jerusalem, all you're going to be able to see is the blinding glory of God. That's going to be what you're going to notice most. And if that's not what you notice most, you're probably not going to be there because that's what we look forward to the most. We look forward to the most, what I look forward to the most is not living in the new Jerusalem in some mansion. I look forward most, for the most part, of being in the presence of the living God. I mean, to actually see his presence. And so, so uh, anyway, he says, and the, he says, and having the glory of God, and the light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone. We've looked at this stone before. It's simply, literally, the word uh, jasper literally means translucent. And so if you could compare this to any stone that we know of on earth, you would compare it to a diamond, a perfect diamond. And this diamond is like, it's like a crystal, a pure crystal, and it's radiating the glory of God. And that's what John sees first. All right, now, look at verses 12 and 13. He says, also, she had a high wall and 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. Now, the wall we're going to see in a minute is 220 feet high. That's 10 times the height of the Great Wall of China. So this is a massive wall. And, and there are 12 gates on the wall and 12 angels guarding the gates, and the names of them which are the names, the names on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, why would the gates of the eternal city be named after the 12 sons of Jacob? That tells me two things. I think there's two reasons for that. One, it demonstrates God's sovereignty over mankind. It demonstrates his eternal plan to create the nation of Israel. He knew the names that he put on those gates. And actually, I believe they've been on, been on 
those gates, since that city has been built somewhere back in eternity. Long before this earth was ever made, their names were on the gate of that city. Long before he called Abraham out of the land of Chaldea, long before Abraham had Isaac, long before Isaac had Jacob, long before Jacob bore the 12 sons of Israel, those names were written on those gates. And so those names, the fact that they're there on those gates, attest to the fact that they attest to the election and sovereignty of God. And uh, not only do they attest to his election and sovereignty over the nation of Israel, they attest to his election and sovereignty over your life, over my life, over all of the life of everybody who's ever lived. All right, now, the second thing that we see as we look at these gates, they speak volumes to me about God's grace. Because way back in eternity, God chose to put these 12 names on these 12 gates knowing what rascals these guys were going to be. I mean, they were, they were terrible. I mean, on those gates, on a couple of those gates, you see the name of Simeon and you see the name of Levi. Remember those guys? I mean, they tricked those guys in Shechem into circumcising themselves, and, and that was bad enough. They circumcised themselves, and while they were writhing in pain, they went and killed them. They slaughtered the whole city. I mean, and their names are on the, heavenly, the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem, on the wall there. Uh, you look at Judah. His name is on one of the gates. Now, you think, Judah, I can understand that because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. That would make sense. But do you remember how Judah's line was, lineage was carried on? He had an affair with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who he thought was a prostitute. And he had a son named Perez, and Perez is in the line of Jesus Christ. And there's his name on one of these gates. Then look at the other sons. I mean, they sold their own brother into slavery. Actually, you know, they figured he died in slavery. and So they really, in essence, killed their own brother, and yet their names are on these gates. They're written on the 12 gates of, of, uh, of the new city. Uh, you talk about grace, that's a lot of grace. Look at verse number 14. We see grace about us here too now. He says, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the names on the 12 foundations and the names on the wall uh, also tell us a story. Uh, I mean, those those names on the 12 foundations tell us the same story of God's sovereignty and grace that the names on the wall tell us. In other words, God knew the names of the 12 apostles before he created the world. Before he created the world, he knew who the 12 apostles were going to be. Way back in eternity, before time began, he knew the name of, names of the 12 apostles. You over to Luke chapter 6, and I've heard many a sermon on this subject where Jesus goes up the night before he named the 12 apostles, he went up to the mountain and he prayed. And he prayed all night. And I've heard a many a sermon. I haven't preached that myself, but I've heard a many a sermon that said that Jesus went up there so him and the Father could figure out which 12 apostles he was going to choose. No, he knew the names of those 12 apostles before the foundation of the world. That's why, remember when he chose Bartholomew, when he chose Nathaniel, who was Bartholomew. You remember when Bartholomew came to him, Nathaniel came to him? Jesus, you remember what Jesus told him? He said, I saw you while you were praying under the fig tree. In other words, you were praying to me. I knew you before the foundation of the world, Nathaniel. I knew you would be one of my apostles. And so he knew all of these uh, 12 before they were, uh, they were actually chosen by him to become the 12 apostles. And one of those he chose, his name was Judas. But Judas was chosen, why? Because he was the son of perdition. And Jesus said he was the son of perdition before the foundation. Well, he knew that he was the son of perdition. Did Judas have a choice to be the son of perdition? Yes. But God knew he would make that choice. 
And so he was chosen to be the son of perdition. Now, Judas hung himself, and so his name isn't on one of those gates. Whose name's there? Well, a lot of people say it's Matthias because the disciples got together in the upper room and they cast dice and they decided that it was going to be Matthias. Well, I don't think God chooses people by lot. Now, sometimes he does. But I don't think Matthias was the 12th apostle. Who do you think maybe the 12th apostle was? Most of you probably know. Probably more than likely it's Paul's name that was written on that gate. So you take all of those 12 guys together and none of them reached the stature that they reached except by grace. I mean, think about those guys. What did they do when, when, when Jesus was arrested in the garden? What did they do? Peter went, was bold enough to go to the place where Jesus was being tried, but what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. Where were the rest of the apostles other than John? They had all scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and they were scattered. Look at the great apostle Paul. Think about the apostle Paul. What was he doing when Jesus Christ saved him? He was on his way to Damascus to have Christians killed and put into prison. And he was, I'll tell you where he was heading in his life. He was on his way to hell. He didn't think he was, but he was on his way to hell. And by grace, by grace, God called him. But you know why God called him? Because his name was written on that gate before the foundation of the world. By grace, he called Paul, and he called Paul to be the great apostle to the Gentiles that he became. Now, those names on those 12 gates and those names on those 12 foundations tell me that all of the children of God, literal Israel and spiritual Israel, were chosen before the universe was created to be residents in the New Jerusalem. Your name's been marked out somewhere in the New Jerusalem. It's marked out right now, and it was marked out for you before the foundation of the world. You don't believe that? Let me prove that to you in Scripture. Go with me back to 1 Timothy. And look in 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, just a few books back from Revelation. 2 Timothy chapter 1, look down at verse number 9. I'll begin with the word Lord. The Lord who has saved us. How many of us save ourselves? How many of you ever, how many of you saved yourself? Well, if you say, think you saved yourself, you're not saved. Nobody saves themselves. Look at what it says. It says, the Lord who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Nobody was ever saved according to their own works. And that's why you can't lose your salvation, because the reason you're saved is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, not because of any works that you do. I'm going to show you that in a minute. He says, the Lord has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but but according to his own purpose and what his own election really you can say and grace just as those 12 uh, sons of Jacob their names are written on the wall uh, in in the new Jerusalem and and the 12 apostles are written on the foundation of the new Jerusalem your name is written in the lamb's book of life why because of not because of your good works but according to God's election and according to God's grace, which was given to us in Jesus Christ when we got saved? When was it given to us? Before time began. Before, don't, you ought to get excited about that. I'm not trying to drum you up any excitement here. But if you're a born-again believer, that should really excite you. Because that tells me that I never did anything to get born again uh, other than choose God. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But... God had a play in that too. But my name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And if it was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world and God chose to save me according to his election, that means I can never get unsaved. Man, I can go out tonight and I can go out to the worst bar in town in Lafayette and I can get rip-roaring drunk 
and I can do some terrible things, and I am still saved. Now, if I want to do that, I'm not saved. See, because God has changed me. When he saved me, he gave me his Holy Spirit. And his spirit changed the things that I want to do. I don't want to do those things anymore. What I'm trying to do now is by the spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh because my new nature hates the flesh. It hates those evil things. And, 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 and it's not because I'm a good person. It's because God is making me a good per- person. So when was the Lamb's Book of Life written? It was written before the foundation of the world. And your name had better be in it, or you're not going to be saved. And, and I'm going to show you just how important that book is in a, in a minute when we get to verse 27. But let's go back and look at some more about this, this new Jerusalem. Pick up with me and let's read verses 15 and 16. Look at this place, man. It is, go back to Revelation chapter 21 and look at 15 and 16. He said, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. Now, you talk about a city. This is some city. Look at this. The city is laid out in a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. Now, watch the measurements because this is not just any square. This is a cube. It's got to be a cube because look at what it says. And he measured the city with the reed 20, I'm sorry, 12,000 furlongs, uh, its length and its breadth and its height are equal. That tells me the fact that the length and the breadth and the height are equal, that this is a cube, a very large cube. Uh, 12,000 furlongs is about 1,400 miles. And so that makes this cube 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles deep, and 1,400 miles wide. That is a, or high rather, that is a big, big city. What's really interesting is it's about the exact same mass as the moon. Now, I don't think the moon is the new Jerusalem, but when you look at the moon at night, tonight, I don't think we have a full moon tonight, but next time there's a full moon, you look at the moon, and when that moon, just imagine that moon coming down to the earth, and think about how large that moon is, and that's how large this city's going to be. Look at verse number 17. Look at the wall. Look at the wall of the city. Then he measured its walls, and it was 140 cubits, uh, about 220 feet high. As I said earlier, that's 10 times the height of the Great Wall of China. According to the measure of man, that is of an angel. It's an angel who's doing the measurement, but it's according to the measurement of man, which is he's measuring in cubits. And so it's 220 feet wide, 1,400 miles long in every direction. That is some wall. Some wall. And now, look at the construction of this place. I mean, they don't use any shabby materials in heaven. Look at, look at, look at verse number 18. This, the construction of its wall is jasper. I mean, it's a full diamond wall going 1,400 miles in every direction, 220 feet high. Can you imagine that sight of that? And the city is made of pure gold. Pure gold, like clear glass. Now, if you know anything about gold, the, the more impurities you take out of the gold, the less metal there is in it. They only leave metal in the gold to keep the gold from just collapsing. And so you've heard of gold dust, and so you have the metal there. But you take out all the impurities, and what you have basically is like glass. And so it's made of pure gold, gold you can see through Gold that radiates the Shigana glory of God throughout the universe. Can you imagine the sight of this place? And, and that's not going to be the only color. Look at verses 19 and 20. Let's look at these colors. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, like diamond. The second was like sapphire. That's a brilliant blue stone. If you ever, you've seen sapphires before. The third was like chalcedony. That's a stone from Turkey, and it's a multicolored stone. It's like a rainbow. And the fourth was like an emerald. That's a green, bright green stone. We know what an emerald is. The fifth was sardonyx, which is a dark red stone. And the sixth was sardius, which is a light red stone. The seventh is chrysolite, which is this yellow-hued stone. The eighth uh, was uh, beryl, and beryl is, is uh, a mix of green and blue and yellow. And the ninth is a topaz. That's a yellow-green stone. Uh, 
The tenth is chrysoprosy. I knew I wouldn't be able to pronounce this. Chrysoprosy is what it is. I got it right. There you go. Chrysoprosy, which is this golden green stone. And the eleventh is jacinth, which is a violet stone. And the twelfth is amethyst, which is a purple stone. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Look at all of those colors. And they're all clear stones. What are they made to do? They're made to radiate the Shekinah glory of God through these prisms of colors throughout the universe. Can you imagine the sight of that city from space? When you look down upon that city and all of these colors are glowing from the city. I mean, you go now to Jerusalem and the thing that strikes you the most when you come into, into uh, the old city is the Temple Mount and that golden dome and the sun, sun hits it at night and it just glows. Well, that is nothing, fellas and girls, compared to what we're going to see in glory when all of these clear stones are here, these multicolored stones, and the Shekinah glory of God is glowing through those stones. It's going to light up the universe in such a brilliant way. We can't even imagine it. All right, now go to verse number 21. And then he says in verse number 21, he says, the 12 gates. Watch this. This is something here. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Now, you talk about some big oysters. Look at these. Each individual gate was one pearl. That's a humongous oyster. God doesn't need oysters to make pearls. And, I, you know, I've heard stories uh, about, about why it's a pearl. And, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I know that God considers us the pearl of great price. And you know how a pearl's made through irritation and all sorts of things that take place in the process over time of, of making the pearl inside the oyster. It's kind of the way God grooms us and, and prepares us for those new bodies that we're going to receive and prepares us for heaven. And so, so maybe there's some symbolism there. We can't be sure, but I'll, I can be sure of this. There's going to be some beautiful gates. I mean, you talk about 12 gates made of solid pearl. Now, that's not the most fascinating part of the city. Now we get to the most fascinating part of the city, beginning in verse number 22. But I saw no temple in it. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Why, why is there no temple in eternity? Now a lot of people teach that there's a temple in eternity. They're going to be a sacrificial system in eternity. And I know they're getting that out of Ezekiel, but I think that's a millennial temple. I don't think you're going to see that in eternity. And, and why is there no temple in eternity? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. That means the, means the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are one. Because the Lord God Almighty is in the Lamb, and the Lamb is in the Lord, and the Lamb is in us, and we are in Him. And so there's no need for the temple because the whole universe will be filled with the glory of God. I mean, there'll be no need for a house of worship in heaven because we're going to live in a state of worship. No longer are we going to be on earth worshiping a God we can't see in heaven. We're going to be with God, and God's going to be a visible reality to us wherever we go. And so we're not even going to be studying theology in heaven because you know what theology is? Theology is the study of God, a God we don't see. But in eternity, no matter where we are, we're going to be in the presence of God. And, and so we won't be studying God. We'll be living with God in perfect fellowship. Now, you talk about a great place. Then look at verse number 23. He says, And the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. I mean, again, God illuminated it. And the lamb is the light. Who's that tell you the lamb is? The lamb is none other than God. People say Jesus isn't God. I don't know what Bible they read. It is everywhere that Jesus is God. He is God Almighty. You can prove it a million ways in the Bible. The lamb is his light because he's God. And there's no, because he is that light, the light of God, there's no need for the sun and there's no need for the moon. God will provide all the light we need in heaven. That's spiritual light and that is physical light. Now that's pretty amazing to me because you look at the sun. I talked about this a few weeks ago. The sun is a hundred times bigger than the earth. That makes the mass of the sun a million times bigger than the earth. The heat of the sun is, hovers around 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. That's hotter than Lafayette. 
I mean, that's hot. 27 degrees, 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And it takes all of that heat to make our day. Now, just think about it. There's not going to be any need for that heat, that sun, when we get into eternity because Jesus Christ has enough power to light up the world, to light up the new Jerusalem, and to light up the entire universe. That's why he's referred to as omnipotent. He has all power. He can be everywhere. His light, he, remember when Isaiah saw his vision of the Lord, he saw him high and lifted up, and his, whole, his train filled, of glory filled the whole earth? Because he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. His light penetrates the entire universe and beyond. Uh, and so uh, he's also omniscient. He's the one who created the sun that we have out there that gives us our light. He's the one who, who uh, created the entire universe. And he did it by his word. We believe by faith. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith God created the heavens and the earth by his word. And we believe that. And the whole universe is created by his world, and he holds it all, all together by his word. And this all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present God is none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who died for you on the cross. That's the one who's going to light up your soul forever and light up this world forever. He's the one who died for us. And we're going to live with him forever. Look at verse number 24. He says, And the nations of those who are saved will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. You know what? When you and I get to heaven, we're going to be in our glorified states. We're going to be in glorified bodies. And that's a good thing. Because no one can see God and live because of his omnipotence and uh, his, all his power and the energy that he has in him. Nobody could stand in his presence unless we're in different bodies. And so we're going to be in glorified bodies, and we're going to have glory and honor in heaven. We're going to be kings and priests unto God forever. And, and, but what are we going to do with that honor when we come to the king? Look at what he says. And those nations and those who are saved shall walk in his light. Really, it should say his light. And the kings of the earth, that's us. We're kings and priests unto God forever. We will bring our glory and honor into it. We're going to have glory and honor. But when we come in his presence, we're going to lay that glory and honor down at his feet. Amen. And then in verse number 25, he says, And the gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no, for, for there shall be no night there. Spiritual night. There'll be no night there physically, and there'll be no night there spiritually. It's going to be light there. It's going to always be light there. And the gates are always going to be open. I mean, try that at home. Leave your doors open at night. You're asking for a lot of trouble. Just leave them open all the time when you, when you go somewhere. I mean, just leave them wide open. I mean, you'll have armadillos in your house and snakes and and thieves and everything else. You can't, you gotta, you better, if you have a gate, you better shut it. If you have a door, you better shut. But in heaven, you can leave everything open. You can leave everything open because everything that defiles heaven, everything that is evil, every person who's evil, they're going to be gone. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire at the point that we, 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 this new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Then in verse number 26, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. You know, nations are really proud today. Uh, you listen to different leaders of different nations, leaders of different political parties, and you see all of this pride in, 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 in the nation, in the people. They're pr we're proud of our economies. We're proud of our armies. We're proud of our culture. Even though it's a godless culture, we're proud of it. And, but in eternity... I mean, the glory of the nations is going to be laid down at the feet of Jesus Christ. When you, we see Jesus Christ in all his glory, all honor and praise and glory are going to go to him. All right. Now, here's the, where we really want to uh, pay attention here. Verse number 27. I mean, so far I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I think I want to be there. What about you? How many people want to be there? Oh, good. I thought so. 
We want to be there. I said last week there's a problem, though. Let's look at the problem. But there shall by no means enter anything or anyone that defiles. What do we defile things with? Our sin. Anyone who sins at all, they're not, they're not going to make it to heaven. They're not going to make it to the new Jerusalem. They're not going to make it in eternity. Or causes an abomination. That, remember, we looked at that word last week. What does it mean? It means to stink things up. It just causes a stink. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm stinky. I'm I, I still stinky. I stink things up at times. I know about you. You stink things up too, so you, you don't just look at me like, boy, I can't believe you stink like that. You stink too. We all stink. But anything that stinks is not going to be allowed into heaven. And heaven is a place of righteousness, so nothing that stinks or nothing that defiles it will be allowed there, but it's also a place of truth. And so he says, but there shall by no means enter at anything that defiles it or causes an abomination or a lie. A lie. But only those who don't lie who don't defile it and who aren't an abomination will make it in heaven. It doesn't say that, thank goodness, it doesn't say that. It says, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, we've got a problem. We've got a problem that's called sin. We have a fallen nature. I don't care what anybody wants to tell you, you have a fallen nature. We are born with a fallen nature, and it only gets worse as we grow older and we're impacted by this world. We're impacted by people who sin. And so, I mean, even if you didn't have a fallen nature, it'd be fallen before you left this earth because there's so many fallen people around you. Your parents are fallen, so you would be fallen. So, so everybody's fallen. Everybody has a fallen nature. We all defile the, this earth. We all stink up things. We all lie at times. And we have to be absolutely cleaned up and absolutely perfect in order to enter heaven. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see God. Now, he's not sort of holy there, a little bit holy, mostly holy. It's without total holiness, absolute perfection, no one will see God. Now, I got to tell you, before I was saved, you, man, the last thing God would want to do would have wanted to do was to take me up to heaven. Man, I would have messed that place up so bad so quickly. I mean, his head would have spun. I don't think his head spins, but I mean, it would have been, it would have been tragic what I would have done to heaven. But I've been saved. And by the Spirit of God, I'm beginning to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I'm getting, I'm getting better and better and better and the more I look at God, every time I go to my knees, the worse and worse I feel. The more I feel like a stinker. The more I feel, I mean, I can't even tell a white lie without feeling like a liar. I can't sin the slightest sin without feeling like a sinner. I know that if I, even in the state I'm in now, as beautiful as I am now, that wasn't a joke. Even in the state I'm, seriously, even in the state I'm in now, which I'm way, I'm not what I used to be, as Gert Bahanna said. But thank God I'm not what I used to be, as Gert Bahanna said. But I'm not what I'm going to be yet either. I'm not holy. And I would stink things up. I'm never going to be holy. I mean, you can, you can be the greatest Christian on earth. Paul was maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived. In my view, he was the greatest of all Christians. And he, he even said so boldly, imitate me in my faith. I mean, that's pretty bold. But he also, by the Spirit of God, called himself the chief of sinners. And he wasn't talking about his past. I mean, read Romans 7. He said, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I should do, I mean, the things that I should do, I don't want to do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man, who should deliver me from this body of sin and death? The only deliverance comes in Jesus Christ. Now, there is temporary deliverance in this life. There is some deliverance 
in this life. But it's not, it's not the deliverance that we're going to get by the Spirit of God when we get to heaven. It's because before we enter eternity, every sin, every stinking thing we do, everything that defiles us has to be taken care of. Now how? How? How does that happen? Let me tell you how. Because when eternity begins, you and I will no longer be in this fallen flesh. I mean, we'll no longer be in this fallen flesh. There will be a new us, and we'll be living in a new body, an absolutely perfect body, a body that cannot think evil, a body that cannot sin, a body that cannot stink things up, a character that cannot lie ever. You can't even do it if you wanted to. Now, why do we get those bodies? We get those bodies because we deserve them? No. Let me tell you why we get those bodies. We get those bodies because our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I like the name here. He doesn't call it God's book of life here. He doesn't call it the Father's book of life. He doesn't even call it the Spirit's book of life. He calls it the Lamb's book of life. Why is that? Because nobody, None of us would ever attain to eternal life without the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, without his shed blood, who takes, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so it's the blood of the Lamb that makes us holy for eternity. The author of Hebrews says this, by one offering we've been perfected forever in Jesus Christ. He tells us that over in Hebrews chapter 10. You've been perfected. Positionally, you have been perfected. You're not there yet. But you've been perfected. Why have you been perfected? Because you're a good person? No, because your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And who is the Lamb? The Lamb, listen to me very carefully here. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus himself in John 14 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. What does he mean by that? He means there is no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And all of these churches that are leading people to hell, telling them there's some other way to heaven, they're in for, they're in for a rude awakening. Because there is only one name that can get you to heaven, and you have to put your faith in that name, and that's the name of, the, of Jesus Christ. And only those who put their trust in his blood... Now, you know, you can believe in Jesus Christ and not make it there. You've got to put your trust in his blood for, your, for payment of your sins. You've got to put your trust in his blood for the life that saves you. And, and only those who do that have their names written in the book of life. And when was that book written? It was written before time begins. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that eliminate free will? No, no. It only means that God in his foreknowledge knew those who would choose him. He knew that before the foundation of the world. You know why he knew that? Because he knew how to orchestrate your life in such a way that you would choose him. There's no boasting in choosing God. You didn't choose God because you were such a good person and the rest of this world wasn't. That's not why. You chose God because you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's why you chose God. Listen to what, John, uh, what Jesus says in John 6, 44. He says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. In other words, you cannot make that choice unless the Father draws him. Who does the Father draw? Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look at Paul. Again, Paul. Paul wasn't chosen. I mean, Paul didn't make that choice. He would have never made that choice if Jesus hadn't appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And why did Jesus appear to him on the road to Damascus? Because his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And his name was actually on one of the 12 gates. He said, I better choose him. Otherwise, it's going to look bad when we get to heaven and say, who's this Paul guy? So he chose him. And look at the great work he did. How did he do that work? He did that work by the Spirit of God. Look, I got saved out in the desert. I, I've told you about my testimony before. But i got to tell you, God chased me down. I made a choice to choose God 
But if he hadn't chased me down and orchestrated my life in such a way, I'll tell you what, if I hadn't gotten the trouble I got into back then, people say I had a you know, jailhouse conversion. Well, maybe I did. If I hadn't gotten into the trouble I got in back then, I might not have ever chose him. If I'd gotten rich like I was trying to do and, and just went on off into the sunset with lots of money, you know, I might not have ever chosen God. But he never let that happen in my life. And the reason he didn't let that happen in my life because my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before time began. That's why the Lamb's Book of Life is the most important book ever. More important than the Bible. Because I know a lot of people who can read this Bible a lot more than I do. They read this Bible, they quote all sorts of verses, and then you listen to their theology, and you know they're not saved. Why are they not saved? Because their name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I know people who can quote all sorts of scriptures. I, I know people who consider themselves, I mean, you could be the greatest theologian on, on this earth. I know people who consider themselves to be great theologians. And I believe they're not saved because of some of the things they believe. And, and so... I mean, you can even have your name written in this Bible and not be saved. you believe that? Judas' name is in the Bible. Saul's name in the Bible is in the Bible, and I don't believe he's saved. So the only way, the book that matters the most, and I love the Bible. It's the most important book on earth. It's the most important book you can have in your hands. It's the most important book ever written. You don't have the book of life. The Lamb has the book of life. And that is the most important book ever because if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then you're going to live in heaven forever and ever. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, look at verse number 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And they have no, you can go back and look in another verse in Revelation, and they have no rest day or night. They are tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. That's the fate of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question of the day is, how do I get my name in the greatest book ever? How do I get my name in there? I mean, you, having your name in the Bible is not necessarily a good thing. But it is a good thing to have your name in the Lamb's book of life. Let me tell you how you get your name in there. You choose to put your faith in the Lamb of God for your salvation. And not your works. Your good works are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. Not in your religion. There are religions that will tell you that if you just join our church, you've bought your ticket to heaven. That is not going to save anybody. In your heritage, well, my parents were Christians, so I'm going to be a Christian. And certainly God's not going to put me in hell if my parents were Christians. Oh, you better believe he will. You have to choose Jesus Christ. You have to truly Choose Jesus Christ. You have to put all your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you will be given the Spirit of God. You will be born again. And guess what? You'll know that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. I know that. Do you know that? If you don't know that, if you don't know that, how do you know? How do you know whether your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Look, you're not saved by your good works. I mean, you're not, I do mean that. You're not saved by your good works. You're saved by your faith. But as James says, your faith produces good works. There's a new nature in you, in you. I've said this over and over again. If you're born again, you know you're born again. You know you're different. You know you have the Spirit of God. If you're just playing church, if you're reading your Bible and studying your Bible and you're praying every day, that is, doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. You must be born again. 
And so you, and, and if you don't know that, you're probably not born again. Because there's a difference when the Spirit of God lives in you. You know it's different. You know you've been changed. And you can look at your life. You can look at your life. If you're still unbelieving, if you're still cowardly, if you're still stinking, if you're still a murderer, if you're still immoral, if you're still into witchcraft, if you're still got life is full of idolatry, if you have no character, if you're still a liar, if no one can trust you, then, hey, your name is probably not in the Lamb's book of life. Or you don't know it yet. And you need to find out. Well, that's the most critical issue of your life. Are you in the Lamb's book of life, or are you going to hell? It is the greatest, most important book ever. Find out. Ask God if you're in it or if you're not. You make that choice to ask God and seek God. I bet you'll find you're in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the... the glorious future we have in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who take away our sin at that cross, Lord. Way back in eternity past, you planned for him to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, you planned for us to live forever with you. You wrote our names down in your book of life. Lord, we're so grateful for that because none of us would have made it without your grace. None of us. Lord, only those who you draw can come to Jesus Christ. Can understand lord if there's someone here who doubts their salvation that my purpose here lord you know is not to get people to doubt their salvation but lord if it's their salvation is not real help them to see that it's not real lord because i know that you wish that none should perish that all should come to eternal life and lord if if their name's not written in that book it's because you knew that that they would reject you and never truly come to you by faith and so, Lord, I ask that you just draw them near you into a true relationship with you and let today be the day of their salvation. Father, again, we just thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.